Hey guys, it's Nikki here. I'm back in my home city of Melbourne and that's where I'm recording my section of the podcast today. I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians on the land in which I am recording, the peoples of the Kulin Nation. I also pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi guys and welcome. Hello. Hi and welcome to another episode of Monuments, Museums and Mojitos podcast. Have you missed us? Don't worry, we're back. Or maybe worry. <laughs> well, it is International Women's Day on the 8th of March. So we thought that we would have a bit of a special episode today. But before that, we'll discuss what are we drinking, Nikki? Today we are drinking a Rosini cocktail, which is none other than the Prosecco wine with some strawberry puree. Sounds pretty simple. Just zhuzh up some strawberries, mix it with some Prosecco, and voila, you have this bubbly, fizzy delight. Super nice. I have to mention something about the Prosecco. You know, when I was in Italy last week, a colleague of mine who works in gastronomy, he was saying that the industry of making Prosecco is not really sustainable, not really good, because many traditional wine sorts of Italy are being replaced by Prosecco production because there is a high demand for Prosecco, which is not okay. Oh. Interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah we mm. Aussies love a Prosecco. Yeah, it's big in, big in the UK too. Guys, don't make this cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would say try to explore wines that are from marginal areas or some different sorts of wines. Okay, yeah, fair, fair, call, fair comment. Thanks for that, Polly. Yeah. So anyway, that's what we're drinking. For you guys, it's like the middle of the day. For me, it's the night. It's a nice little nightcap, as they say. Yeah. Can I not hear that? Yeah. What? what is that? There's like a noise, like a beeping. Like a beep, 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 beep. Oh, this is the dryer. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Let me just open the dryer. I'm coming in a second. <laughs> so whatever and however you're choosing to celebrate uh, International Women's Day, whether you're going to be out there belting at a protest or spending time with important women in your life, I think our episode for you today is going to be an interesting one. Today, we are going to dive into some of the baddest, boldest, most interesting women of history. We've all chosen two different women to speak about, so we don't know what the other person will speak about. So we as well will be learning and asking questions as we go. We are going to choose two bad girls of history each to discuss what we love about their stories. We've all yeah. chosen two women of our choice who are our faves and we're going to share that with each other and you guys and hopefully learn about a couple of characters that we may not have known of before. Yeah, and take inspiration from their actions. And... Okay, maybe... Not exactly, because one of the people I'm going to talk about is, has helped for the death of so many people. <laughs> but like, oh. take inspiration of... Yeah. <laughs> okay. With caution. Tread with caution. With caution, yeah. Draw inspiration cautiously. When did you guys become staunch feminists? Go, tell me. 
from birth. Uh, no. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. Uh, no, probably around the age of, I'd say, probably around the age of 20. Hear me out. Because although I feel like I embodied feminism at a younger age I also had a lot of teenage insecurities that would have enforced kind of gender stereotypes and that kind of thing so I felt like from the age of about 20 onwards I really embraced my feminism and yeah could stand up for myself and other women to embrace their potential yeah I feel the same was for me at the age of 22 23 maybe when I went to live in Spain and the main reason behind that was in Spain, you have a very strong feminist movement. And me being also in this age, I started forming kind of my political identity, I guess. So I'm more left-wing. And obviously, left-wing is, is strongly associated with equal rights and with feminism. And yeah, I guess around that age, I started, okay, understanding that in order to have a better society as a whole, including also men, we should have, we should strive for equality, both financially, socially. I think it's very important that also men stand for feminism and they say that they are feminists because I do believe that with our help, equality can be achieved. And after achieving this equality, I, I think also men would have a better life, not only. Mm. Yeah. yeah, totally, totally. Definitely. I was kind of the same. I think in my early 20s, it kind of dawned on me, the whole movement, and that's when I understood it the most. And it was thanks to a friend of mine, actually, who took me along to an International Women's Day protest because we protest in Australia. And I had this, like, makeshift sign that I made in five minutes that was massive saying, like, my body, my choice. And ever since then, it really, like, took off. Mm-hmm. But yeah. yeah, I think kind of like you, Zan said, as women, we are conditioned by society from a young age to feel like we don't deserve equal access to things mm-hmm. for our or generation, to allow certain behaviors towards us and that kind of thing as well. Yeah. Exactly. So I think like that probably explains why we kind of became aware of it in our 20s and not earlier. But in saying that, I think younger generations and generations to come are starting to be more aware of this and have access to this earlier on. Yes, yeah. definitely. And I, yeah. and I feel the last 10 years have been really progressive in that sense. Like mm, there's still a yeah, lot to totally. be achieved, but I think people have become, especially in, in our balloon, maybe in our bubble, have been, become a really bubble, socially aware. Mm-hmm. And I even feel during my time in Greece, when I arrived in 2018 on the 8th of March, I was surprised that there weren't really protests or it was normal day, you know. However, two or three years later, there were already protests. Interesting. And because when I came in 2018 in Spain, there were already protests. So I guess I see that the idea is spreading. And I think the next decade will be very interesting in, in, in that totally. sense, how it will yeah. develop. And I think the misconceptions about feminism are, are kind of falling away as well. Like where toxic masculine men yeah. <laughs> like to impose their kind of insecurities upon feminism and be like, women think that they are better and want to take over the world. It's literally just asking for equality. That's all it is. Like, yeah. Yeah. Which is also, which is going to benefit men substantially yeah. also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Enough's enough. We want equality. We want our rights. We want 
equal access and March 8th is actually a day for us to demand and celebrate also wanting those rights. Uh, So it's social, economic, cultural, political achievements, everything. Yeah. Bring it into the spotlight. And actually this year's campaign theme is break the bias. Hashtag break the bias. Hmm. So we're heading into a year and hopefully a world where those biases and judgments and inequality are starting to become broken. So we are going to start by telling you some of our fave gals of the past and why they're so cool. So I think I'll start because I have chosen two women, one of which I'll present to you now from the ancient world. And I think that's probably the furthest back in time we go. So let me begin without further ado. I am presenting to you firstly a female Egyptian pharaoh called Hatshepsut. Now before I get into any of this the reason I have chosen to talk about this fine lady is because there was an attempt to actually erase her from history which flippin' failed. That's right. Today we know about her so hard that this attempt to erase her memory, which is something that like was done to women so often in the ancient world, just like complete erasure of their existence, didn't work. And yay for that. So Hatshepsut, she was the fifth pharaoh of the 18th dynasty Egypt and the second historically confirmed female pharaoh, the first of which was a female queen called Sobnekrefru, who was from 1707 to 1773 BCE. Now Hatshepsut was the eldest daughter of King Thutmose. And basically when he died without having had any sons, Hatshepsut married her half-brother Thutmose II, the rightful heir to the throne. This was normal back then, by the way, like intermarriages and all that jazz. So normal ancestral behavior right here. And basically he was too young. So Hatshepsut acted as his consort. And by the way, she was only 12. Those two had one daughter, but no son, which is like red flag, big problems for ancient Egypt passing on kingship. So when her husband slash half brother died, the throne was passed on to Thutmose III, who was born to a secondary wife or maybe someone like a concubine of Thutmose II, like a queen. Uh, Again, very common to have more than one love interest as a male pharaoh in ancient Egyptian culture. And basically because this guy was an infant, Hatshepsut acted as a regent to the young king. And in these cases, it was accepted for widowed queens to act as regents and they basically handled the affairs until their sons, in this case stepson nephew, came of age and Hatshepsut more or less automatically, it seems, understood this role. Monuments from this time show Thutmose III, still a child, portrayed in a conventional way as an adult king, performing his pharaonic duties, while Hatshepsut, dressed as a queen, kind of stands off in one side in the background, like she's not the main person in this art. But by the seventh year of her regency, and actually it may have been way earlier than we have discovered, this formerly slim, graceful queen appears as a full-blown king with a broad, bare chest of a man and a pharaonic false beard. 
Now, what I love about Hatshepsut is that she didn't do what other pharaohs have done during their reigns. She kind of had this new approach and basically that meant peace. For once, like Egypt wasn't like out there conquering and like ripping throats off of other people for power. So her foreign policy was actually based off trade rather than war. And under Hatshepsut's reign, Egypt prospered like no other ruler in her dynasty had done this. She was more interested in ensuring economic prosperity and building and restoring monuments rather than conquering new lands. She is our heritage manager. She is heritage manager number one. And if any of you know about ancient Egyptian architecture, like obviously 101 are the pyramids of Giza, which uh, we do have an episode on actually, I think uh, two episodes before this one. Basically what's the next hot shit is her temple. And again, the buildings she inaugurated far outdo those of her predecessors and her specifically is the temple at Deir el-Bahri in the Valley of the Kings which mind you is like an entire valley as the name suggests and they're like rock cut out tombs for pharaohs and powerful moguls of New Kingdom Egypt. Then we go towards the end of her reign and Hatshepsut allowed Thutmose to play an increasingly prominent role in state affairs and at the end of his reign An attempt was made to remove all traces of Hatshepsut's rule. Her statues were torn down, her monuments were defaced, and her name was removed from the official king list, which is pretty big deal. As you can imagine, this was like hella confusing for archaeologists because there is a very obvious and strong attempt to erase this pharaoh's memory. So early scholars interpret this as an act of revenge, but actually it seems that Thutmose was ensuring that the succession would run from Thutmose I through to Thutmose II to Thutmose III without any female interruption. So Hatshepsut disappeared into obscurity until 1822 when hieroglyphics were finally deciphered thank you Rosetta Stone and allowed archaeologists to read the Del el inscriptions which is that badass tomb of hers in the Valley of the Kings. Initially, the discrepancy between female name and male image caused confusion, but today the succession is pretty well understood. And actually, I mean, it might surprise you, it might not, but any forms of gender representation that did not fit into the gender dichotomy that we know today, so male and female and like nothing in between, is like, very underrepresented and under-researched in archaeology, which makes sense because conservatism just ripped through archaeology for hundreds of years. But there are actually many, many cases in the ancient world of females, and this is just one example of gender performance with Hatshepsut acting as a male and wearing male clothes. You could say she was a bit of a like cross-dresser, basically defying gender norms of femininity for the time. And this is like hella under-researched and understood, which is why, again, not much emphasis was placed on her as a ruler and so much confusion was caused. But you look at other ancient societies like Minoan Crete, like the Near East, like ancient Greece, even ancient Greek myth, gender representation and performativity are so common and so much more common than we know today. So yeah, that's Hatshepsut. 
fair play to her. Like, she wanted that power. She took that power. Obviously, her stepson was not so uh, so fond of her, like a family feud and all that. But, um, but you know, she, she won out in the end because everyone remembers her name and not his. Like, I hadn't even heard of him, so... Like, how can you remember Thutmose the Third when there's like a million other Thutmoses like before you? <laughs> yeah, yeah like... well, that's not his, that's not his fault, really. <laughs> but yeah, that's Hatshepsut, and she is one of three female pharaohs that we know of. My personality is Empress Matilda, the Queen of England who never was. So I'm bringing her to the light because I feel like she is underappreciated for the things that she achieved and that her like her role in society was taken away purely because of the fact that she was a woman. Matilda was the daughter of Henry I of England. She was born in 1102 and uh, she was born in England in Winchester. So Henry, her father, had come to the throne kind of unconventionally. Matilda was like his daughter. She was his political pawn, as many young princesses were at that time. And as she had a brother, she was then married off at a young age to the Holy Roman Emperor, who was also called Henry. So he was Henry V, the emperor. She, she was sent to him at the age of eight to go live in Germany. And then they were married when she was 11. Um, he was really integral to her upbringing because he wanted her to be a real like consort, someone who could give him proper political advice and stand by him and be a regent when he was absent. So she was brought up to be educated in languages and politics, and she was very intelligent and capable. She was crowned the empress in Rome, and she was the imperial regent in Italy, and like giving out orders, and everyone accepted what she said as the law but it's because she was then acting on behalf of a male counterpart so Matilda had a younger brother he was the heir to the throne and he died in this accident where his ship sank so Matilda then became the de facto heir apparent her husband died when she was only 23 and she was summoned back from Germany to take up the role of the heir so Henry married her off again because he needed uh, male heirs or at least heirs to carry on the throne after so um, and she hadn't had any children with the emperor so she was married to Geoffrey Plantagenet of Anjou who was the duke of the neighboring area to Normandy so back then the king of England owned England and Normandy and then next to Normandy was Anjou the downside was that he was super young (laughs) and you know he was only a duke and and Matilda had been an empress so she wasn't very happy about the match but eventually after some toing and froing they you know got on and when Henry eventually died she was down in uh, Anjou where her husband was obviously the ruler and so she wasn't in England to be able to like leap on the throne so her cousin Stephen did exactly what her father had done and he was in the right place at the right time and he got himself crowned king of England because his brother was the archbishop of Canterbury so his brother just crowned him and even though all of the lords of the land had sworn allegiance to her they all just 
jumped on the Stephen bandwagon and thought, oh, she's a woman. Like, she's not going to put up a fight. She's got better things to do raising her children. My God. But uh, yeah, Matilda was not taking this. Like, she had been an empress. She had been raised to rule, you know? She knew exactly what she was doing. She was politically savvy. And the anarchy is the name given to the ensuing civil war that broke out between Matilda and Stephen. And yeah, it went on for years. Complete civil war across all of France and England. Matilda wanted what was rightfully hers. She wanted her throne. But she was constantly criticized for being unwomanly, for being commanding and demanding and haughty and unsubmissive, unlike what a woman should be. That's what all that's like written in the records about her is basically how arrogant she was. That is like such bullshit. Because it's like, if she wasn't that, she'd be like, oh, she's too feminine. She's too soft. She's too... How is she meant to be a ruler of like a whole kingdom if she is just going to be some submissive woman who doesn't make eye contact? So she rode out across the fields with her armies and she gathered support. And yeah, she was going to take back her throne. And at one point, Stephen was captured and his wife rode out and did the exact same thing, like rallied armies and and decided that she was going to get everyone back on Stephen's side. But because she was doing it on Stephen's behalf, no one said shit about her. Like it was because it was on behalf of a man that was completely accepted. But because Matilda was doing it in her own right for herself. Yeah, everyone was just awful to her. So I'm completely on team Matilda. And after years of fighting, she finally decided that no one was going to let her be queen. So she decided that after all this time, she was going to press her son's claim to the throne because she had plenty of children and her oldest son, also called Henry, because of course he was, she took up the cause on his behalf. And this time, because there was a man who was being kind of given the throne or, you know, given the claim to the throne, everyone rallied round and they were like, yeah, we'll support him, even though he's like nine years old. Yeah, we'll get behind tiny Prince Henry. Everyone changed their tune. They switched sides. And it was agreed that Henry would take over as king after Stephen's death. And Stephen died very soon afterwards. And Henry took over the throne still as a child. And the thing is, then Matilda ruled Normandy and Anjou on behalf of her son, when he became King Henry II, because he ruled England and she then ruled like the French districts that England had control over. And again, because she was a regent acting on behalf of her son, everyone loved her. Like she was praised as such a great woman and such a great ruler, but it was because she was acting on behalf of man. So that's why I am completely team Matilda and I, I nominate her to our hall of fame of bad bitches because she should have been she's not even in the history books as a queen and she completely should have been because she was she was named heir to the throne she should have been first queen of england and she's not why did people back then i'm thinking had as well be like yeah an actual nine-year-old will do better job than like a pretty much grown woman have you hung out with a nine-year-old before i know it, yeah, yeah. It must have been so galling, um, mustn't it? Being like, oh yeah, the people think my child is going to do a better job than me, a grown ass woman who's been an empress. Like, but whatever. Oh, go Matilda! I love that. Thanks, Suzanne. That's some good, good knowledge. Well, speaking about queens, I will speak possibly about the most powerful woman in history, Katrin the Great from Russia. Yeah, I love her. 
So she's like super bright, super ambitious. And literally during her reign, it was the golden age of Russia. Basically, she made Russian empire. So just about the context, guys. During the 18th century, Russia was enjoying an economic boom due to the Baltic routes that Peter the Great opened up. Mm -hmm. But his daughter, Elizabeth, who was a queen then, she never married. She had multiple illegitimate children, but never she acknowledged a daughter or a son. She had to choose a wife for her nephew, which was a 14-year-old German boy who had never also visited Russia. So you, you know in this age, usually you had German kings, for example, ruling over, over other empires, in, the, in this case, Russia. So she had to find young Peter a wife. And in uh, uh, 1744, Sophie of Anhalt-Zerbst married Peter. And when she came to Russia, she had to choose a Russian name and she basically became Catherine. And she didn't go along with her aunt-in-law. She hated her husband. And because of that, she turned to reading. So she started reading French philosophers. She started having multiple lovers. And she was cheating all the time on her on her husband. So we can see also her sexuality mm -hmm. here, which, is very, which was very progressive for that time. And she really believed in self-improvement. She had great urge to be educated, which was very unusual for a woman for that time. And she wanted to be for, at the forefront for European thought. By her early 30s, she has given a birth of a son. So you can see, like, she had lovers, she gave a birth, and she was highly mm -hmm. educated. Very yeah, cool. but she was constantly under the shadow of her husband, Peter, who became king. But he didn't know what Catherine was plotting against him, obviously. He was annoying the church, he, he was annoying the military. He was a complete disaster from the beginning. And Catherine, as a very educated person, was sure that she can run and improve Russia. So she organized a cope. And after six months, Peter stepped down for Catherine. And obviously, a few days later, after the coup, he was dead. Well, Most probably, she, yeah, she organized yeah, to <laughs> kill him, yeah. So now, she became the one of the most powerful rulers of the world. And taking consideration, she was not a real Russian. She was German. She was just married into the Russian royal family. And this meant that she had to manage her brand very carefully. She conveyed literally all the things that people expected from a modern sovereign, and she tried to show that. In paintings, for example, she was using dresses which were resembling men uniforms. So she was not using very feminine dresses in that mm. time. She was dressing up with a very French influence, because then France was the example of a thriving and progressive nation. And she used in her clothes only Russian silk. So you can see that she dresses as an empress, who is elegant, but in the same time, she represents a male army officer because there are male elements in her dresses. Mm -hmm. And she was dressing as a true Russian using Russian silk. You can see how smart she was in branding herself. Mm -hmm. Great marketing techniques. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just some of her successes. In 1768, the Ottomans declared a war on Russia. By that time, Russia had access only to the Baltic Sea, so up north. Back then, Catherine's lover uh, made her a proposal that she should divide the fleet in two. And one of the fleets went down to the Mediterranean and they surprised the Ottomans from behind. So Russia won that war. From then on, she started expanding the empire a lot and she became the greatest emperor of Russia. And she also had to show that. So there were several paintings where we have Peter the Great admiring her. <laughs> Good girl. Um, another interesting case was that during that time, there was a smallpox epidemic all around Europe. So she was very scared about her life. So she invited an English scientist who back then had the theory that a way to fight the disease was to inoculate your body with it. Mm. And 
which was a bit controversial during that time. Mm-hmm. However, uh, she was the first one, so she invited him to Russia, and she wanted this to be tried on her. Wow. Everything went well. The OG participants. Literally, yeah. Trials. Inoculation saved countless lives in Russia. And she again behaved like a true enlightened monarch who embraced science during these these dark ages where everything was based on superstition. Yeah. And I think that's a nice uh, context regarding the anti-vaxxers that we have nowadays. Yeah, vaccines save lives. Nice example, yeah. Fun fact, actually. Apparently, when... You know how Russia made their vaccine? Sputnik mm-hmm. or whatever? No. The COVID vaccine, Sputnik. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sputnik, sorry. I'm probably not saying it correctly. But if I remember correctly... Putin was like the first guy to try mm. it or something and he was like uh look guys it's fine and some people were saying that he's doing Catherine the Great mm. vibes yeah. yeah could be yeah another interesting case was that in 1773 there was a provincial revolt where a random villager said that he was Tsar Peter basically the husband who was killed by Catherine <laughs> he was saying that he has revived but oh how conspiracy <laughs> <laughs> and here you have all disenfranchised people in Russia rose up against the establishment. And Catherine obviously managed to find a military solution for that trouble. And she dealt with it in two years. But she couldn't believe how is it possible that the Russian population would embrace this conspiracy theory. Mm. So after she dealt with it, she had two options. Either I'm going to have a revenge on my people or I'm going to reform the country. So she obviously decided to reform it. And she decided to reform education in order this thing not to occur after that. Usually people, how they react is that, okay, let's kill all the people who didn't obey mm-hmm. to me, you know? Yeah. So you can see how progressive she was. Yeah. Unfortunately, she had a very troubled relationship with, with her son Paul. He had a total lack of interest in culture and ideas, as she was saying. And when she suffered a stroke, he came to power. And she was very skeptical about him already before that. And she was right about it. Mm. He didn't have the right frame of mind to lead the Russian Empire. And the day he was crowned, he passed a law according to which no woman would sit on the throne again. Wow. Her son. Yeah. And yeah, basically, Catherine's suspicion was right. However, she was a big fan of Paul's son, Alexander. Mm. And she always believed that he's the right heir. And after that, obviously, because Paul was not a good ruler, there was a cop against him, and Alexander became a king. And this was in the time when Napoleon was conquering Europe. So Alexander was the Russian czar that faced Napoleon, and we all know how that finished. So you can see here, we have a woman that was super smart, super in front of her time, very ambitious, very successful. She, she knew what to expect from her son. She knew that it's going to be a failure. I really believe that she's really one of the most powerful women we've seen in history. And I think that's a wrap for part one of our Women's Day special. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, please feel free to get in touch with us. We are at at Museums Mojitos on Instagram and Twitter and at the podcast's full name on Facebook. Our next episode coming to you will be part two of our Women's Day special. And boy, do we have three other banging women that we are going to present to you. So please make sure to check that out. And as always, don't forget to rate us and leave your feedback on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We really appreciate that so much. Bye, guys.